You're listening to Commute, the podcast. Congratulations, you'll be smarter when you get there. What up? Welcome into Commute, the podcast. I'm Dave. And I'm Jay. And we are about to take you on a deep dive on three topics that we find interesting, and we're betting that you might just find them interesting, too. We can promise you this. You'll be smarter when you get there. On this edition of Commute, to tip or not to tip? That is the question. This week, we explore the pros and cons of tipping. When it comes to online shopping, we all do it, but we all started doing it way more during the pandemic. But from a scientific standpoint, why do we love online shopping so much? And is there really such a thing as an online shopping addiction? Happy birthday to you. Wait, 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 wait. Do I have to pay somebody now? Who owns the song Happy Birthday? All of that on this edition of Commute. Let's get it. Jay, when it comes to tipping, okay, like tipping at a restaurant, for example, what sort of tipper are you? Are you a straight 10%, 15% kind of guy? Do you tip based on the level of service that you feel you've received? Or do you act like a guy I grew up with who simply tips by rounding up? So, so basically, if your bill was $8.92, okay, perfect. He's going to tip you $0.08. Cents. <laughs> Well, I definitely don't do that. Um, I sort of just tip, uh, you know, just kind of just feel it. This felt like a $7 tip. I don't yeah, know. I'm not shocked uh, at all. Sometimes I'll, I'll kind of use people around me as kind of a gauge. So I'll write, I'll write down like six or something, and then I'll look over, and the person beside me has written like nine, and I'm like, ah, I better kick it up a little bit, and I'll move it up to like eight. Now that you say that, I don't think we've ever gone out to eat together where you haven't said, hey, what are you going to tip? Uh, I'm, I'm looking, though. I'm always observing. I'm always seeing, like, what's everybody tipping, and then I just kind of feel it out. Well, Jay, having multiple friends who have either previously worked in the service industry or currently do, I tend to feel that I'm a pretty generous tipper. Like, I'll I'll pat myself on the back for this one. Even when I get terrible service, I try to remind myself, okay, well, they probably have a family, so you're really tipping their kids. You're you're putting food on their their table. Like, at least I, I tell myself that so I can feel better about it. But Jay, when you stop to think about it, tipping is really kind of weird, isn't it? I mean, it's like we, the customer, are paying an employee instead of the employer paying their employee. So why do we tip? And should we continue to do so? Well, Jay, in the U.S. food industry alone, tipping accounts for a whopping $47 billion annually, making up the majority of restaurant server wages. But while the concept of tipping is originally European, tipping in America actually has a very troubled past rooted in racism. In her book, Forked, A New Standard for American Dining, author Saru Jayaraman traces the history of tipping in America back to the Civil War. After the Civil War, Jayaraman writes that tipping was a way to keep on black labor at basically no cost. The idea of tipping for good service in Europe, more or less a bonus, became a way for businesses in America to not pay their workers a living wage, or at all. In 1938, when FDR signed the nation's first minimum wage laws into effect, they excluded restaurant workers, a category at the time mainly consisting of women and primarily women of color. And Jay, it's hard to believe, but things really haven't changed a whole lot since then. 
By the mid-1960s, there was still no guaranteed wage for servers, their income stemming solely from tips. And today, that minimum wage is only $2.13 per hour for restaurant workers. Think about that. I mean, huh? While there is a minimum wage in some states that does take tipping into account, it can still often be a very problematic way to pay people. But to be fair, and while we do need to take the history of tipping into consideration, some folks end up making quite a nice living off of tips. They're lifers. So let's do a quick little commute the podcast argument, both for and against the concept of tipping. Let's start with the against. As I just laid out a few moments ago, tipping really drives inequality. It plays into age, gender, and racial biases, leading to major pay differences. For example, the New York Times reported that young blonde women are tipped much more than older brunette women. And in the car-sharing industry, like Uber, for example, women are tipped 12% more than men. Jay, it also creates major pay divides, often in the same restaurant. A 2019 episode of one of my favorite podcasts, Freakonomics, explored the mystery of tipping and found that some servers in New York City made over two and a half times more than their co-workers who cook or wash dishes in the same restaurant. And many states in America do not allow tip sharing. So servers' tips go directly into their pockets, and you cook that delicious five-star meal. Thanks, too bad. Here's 10 bucks. Now, how about an argument for tipping? Well, the main argument is simple. Incentive-based service. Tipping can predictably lead to better service. In theory, outside of my friend who rounds up and tips a nickel, the harder a server works, the more they'll be paid. Also, if you're paid a percentage, why not constantly upsell? Dessert, anybody? It helps the restaurant be more profitable and sustainable. It's also become an incredibly lucrative way for businesses to earn money for basically nothing. Like something wild that's happened over the past few years, the iPad spin. You know what I'm talking about? Oh, yeah. Restaurants that don't have a traditional tipping model, like fast food, for example, they spin this iPad around for you to sign, and it gives you a little suggested tipping amount. Basically, you're tipping them for doing nothing but spinning the iPad around. Conclusion, Jay, rooted in racism or not, tipping is as American as fireworks or apple pie. It's so ingrained in our culture that it feels like it's probably just going to be around forever. Yeah, I mean, you'd need an entire consumer revolution to get rid of tipping, and you would need to basically extract years of pain on anyone in the <laughs> service industry. So how about on that iPad spin? Do you hit the $1 and sign it? I always feel bad if I don't, you know? I, so, uh, yeah, I usually See? end up hitting, like, the 20% or something just because I feel bad, you know, and I feel like I need to, to help support the person behind the behind the iPad. And that's exactly what they want you to do. That's exactly how they want you to I'm not going to lead the revolution. You're responsible. I'll, I'll, you know, I'll get in line, but I'm not going to lead it. So Dave, uh, a lot of us did a lot more online shopping during the year 2020, obviously. We weren't at home and uh, we didn't want to go out to the mall or anything like that. So we did the bulk of our shopping over the internet, but you really took it to new heights, right? I mean, you you did a lot of shopping uh, during the, the year of coronavirus. Am I right? That felt very shameful, <laughs> the way you put it. But that. am I right? I mean, you're not wrong. You're not wrong. Um, so I had to work from home, and I'm not somebody who wants to work from home. So I had to work from home for a little while. It's like four or five months. And so I'd always, I, I've, I've been like this my whole life. Always, I, I'm one of these people that needs to like treat myself. Like, oh, I had a good day. I'm going to treat myself. I had a bad day. 
guess I'll treat myself. <laughs> so when I was working from home, it was a lot of like mixed bags. Like, was this a bad day? Was this a good day? I don't know. I guess I better treat myself. Well, what do you think the primary driver there was emotionally? Is it that you like to you know, get the immediate rush of buying something? Is it the, like, you do it when you're stressed? Like, what do you think your triggers are for buying things online? Boredom. <laughs> you're just clicking. <laughs> you know, you got that credit card information saved. You're just ready to go. Honestly, there was, it's kind of like when you take that first drink of coffee, you get that little, ooh, I kind of needed something just to, oh, okay. Well, yeah, and that's, that's scientific, what you're saying. You know, most of us buy things online, and over the years, the act of online shopping has transformed from being sort of like a novelty thing to just being part of everyday life. Amazon, which was launched as exclusively an online bookseller in 1995, has evolved into a store in which customers buy around 7,400 products every minute. While online shopping was already on the rise in the lead up to 2020, the pandemic just sent e-commerce into orbit. In fact, Dave, the annual retail trade survey reports that e-commerce jumped by $244 billion or 43% in just the year 2020. Now, this number makes sense, obviously, because we were actively avoiding human contact in 2020. But on another level, there may be some psychological reasons behind this jump as well. Angela Hopped recently wrote an article for Time Magazine titled, Why Online Shopping Makes Us So Happy, in which she interviewed experts in psychology on this jump, and most suggest something that we probably already know on some level, and that is that online shopping is, on a physical level, therapeutic. A study published in the Journal of Consumer Psychology in 2014 specifically indicates that making purchases helps people feel instantly happier. Researchers speculate that this is because the act of purchasing something actually confers on us a sense of control and autonomy. Shopping, Dave, as it turns out, is actually very much driven by our emotions. George Barraza, a program director and professor of psychology at the University of Southern California, put it this way. When we're sad, when we're stressed, we're more likely to engage in this kind of behavior. That boost in mood might be transitory if you're spending more than you can afford, but at least temporarily, it does appear to restore a sense of control and reduce any residual sadness people might be experiencing. And Dave, when you think about it, not only does it make us feel better in the moment, but the act of shopping online is really just fundamentally easier than shopping in person. Joshua Klapau, a professor of psychology at the University of Alabama at Birmingham, compares it in this way. He says it's psychologically so powerful, it's much more gratifying an experience overall because there's less friction, less barriers, less behavioral cost, more specificity, and more choice. And Dave, convenience in this case, it really does matter. Online shopping allows us to remove the travel time, the standing in line, the looking for items, and then the store potentially not having that item. These things have just, in a way, sort of added up for consumers. Online shopping, in addition to that, though, is very powerful from a neurological perspective, since the act itself is a form of instant gratification. Joseph Cable, a cognitive neuroscientist at the University of Pennsylvania, says it this way. He says, this is a tendency that's universal among people and is shared across much of the animal world. People and other animals tend to discount outcomes in the future relative to the outcomes that are immediate. 
This means we prefer to have good things as soon as possible and to postpone bad things as far as possible into the future. And Dave, past the immediate gratification, there's also the anticipation of the package arriving, which brings all kinds of levels of excitement. Now, if you open up the Diagnostic and Statistical Manual of Mental Disorders, or the DSM for short, you will not find any sort of shopping addiction disorder listed. However, experts have long debated and continue to debate whether or not to categorize something like frequent online shopping as a mental disorder or as a leisure activity that we just do to manage our emotions. But the conversation does exist. In 2014, a study was published in the Journal of Behavioral Addictions in which researchers prevented factors that could predispose someone to developing an addiction to online shopping, such as low self-esteem, low self-control, and frequent exposure to graphics and pop-up messages. In 2017, another research article published in Frontiers in Psychology developed a scale on which someone could measure their online shopping addiction. Online shopping has become so easy now, too, with the addition of a buy now button and with our credit card info stored on our devices for quick checkouts, it's easy for anyone to get carried away. Financial experts suggest that if you want to cut down on your online shopping or think you may have a problem, Dave, you could remove your stored credit card information, always review items in your cart before you purchase, and try to stick to a budget. And Dave, I don't know, maybe you need to take stock of your closet and see if you need to take some of that advice going forward. So I didn't just buy these like luxury things. Oh, he needs a new <laughs> That's shirt, how I a new hoodie, it. a new hat. Like boots, it wasn't all like that. Actually, <laughs> the best purchase I made. Do you remember when there was the strange toilet paper shortage? Uh, yes. Literally the first day that I saw something on the news that there was a toilet paper shortage, I, I thought to myself, I'm not dealing with this. I immediately got online and ordered a bidet. <laughs> now let me tell you, bidets are not supposed game to replace toilet paper. Changer, you still uh, well, need if you use paper. them right, you need like one square of toilet paper if you use it right. <laughs> now the first time you use that thing, man, it's a water cannon. Like you got to be careful; that thing will hurt. <laughs> but if you know how to use it, once you get used to it, incredible. It's like you're constantly bathing in a waterfall. <laughs> Imagine it's like when I power wash the side of my house. That's kind of it. It's like you're power washing your body. <laughs> Yeah, it's a little TMI. Jay, we both have young children. And man, watching them learn is just insane sometimes, is it not? I mean, like they pick up on the craziest stuff. An example would be my son, who is starting to use my own ploys against me. He always wants to watch the most annoying kids shows ever. And if you have a small child, you know exactly what I'm talking about. And for a while, I would tell him he couldn't watch a certain show, like the infuriating cartoon Bob the Train, because it was (laughs) out of order. (laughs) Lie, yes, necessary, 100% for my sanity. Well, now he's almost three, and when I want to watch something that I like, sports, for example, he started to tell me that it's out of order, and I'm not allowed to watch that. (laughs) Yeah, I used to do the thing. Uh, I have twin boys that are four, and um, we always let them each pick a story before bedtime. And so sometimes they just pick the one that you don't want them to pick, like it's the longest one, and you're tired, and you've had a long day. And when they were younger, I could just kind of grab like three or four pages, just kind of flip three or four at a time, and they wouldn't notice. Uh, But now they've memorize the book and so you skip one word and they're all over your case about it so least favorite kids book oh man i'll tell you what i hate 
all the places you'll go. I don't know if you've had to read that one. Huh. Yeah. It is it is tough to read because there's a lot of like weird rhymes that make no sense and it's longer than you think it is. Yep. Uh, I hate it when they pick that one. Mine, not even close. Caps for sale. <laughs> I have oh. no idea what that is. <laughs> it's about this guy that has a million caps on his head and these monkeys <laughs> steal it and it's it's just weird and he naps by a tree for a while and it just it's a disaster. <laughs> but Jay, anyway, one thing that helps kids universally learn because they're already so smart, is music. Like, at a certain point, all kids somehow really know the same nursery rhymes, like Twinkle, Twinkle, Little Star, or Mary Had a Little Lamb. Another song that all kids learn at a young age is Happy Birthday. So, Jay, going off of our copyright discussion last week with Winnie the Pooh, I wondered, who owns the world's most popular song? Who owns Happy Birthday? Well, despite the urban legend that you may have heard, no, neither Michael Jackson nor Paul McCartney has ever owned Happy Birthday. And yes, as you may have suspected, Happy Birthday is in fact, in the previously discussed from last week, public domain, meaning you can sing it to your heart's desire at every birthday party you attend, free of charge. But it hasn't always been that way. In fact, up until just a few years ago, 2016 to be exact, you could be charged for singing Happy Birthday. Jay, the world's most popular song, given that title by the Guinness Book of World Records, Happy Birthday contains just 12 words. It has a bit of contention, though, attached to it, to its origins. While people still occasionally argue that we do not know who originally wrote Happy Birthday, most historians give the credit to sisters Mildred and Patty Hill. Mildred, a kindergarten teacher in 1893, which, did we even have school in 1893? I mean, it feels like <laughs> it a sci-fi... It was a very good school. It, I mean, we had it, it but... <laughs> it feels like a sci-fi movie to even try to conceptualize life in 1893. Teaching in what I'm sure was a very small one-room schoolhouse, Mildred wanted to teach her kindergarten class a simple tune. She wanted her students to be able to learn how to sing a song together. Soon, music was created, a melody was found, and Mildred, along with her sister, developed those simple yet magical happy birthday lyrics. And that's where the song lived. Just a free-to-use silly thing for nearly 40 years. All of that changed, though, when the third sister in the Hill family, Jessica, grew tired of hearing the song, which had spread through the country over the years, and not making any family money off of it. So, in 1935, the third sister, who actually did not help to write the song, filed to get the song copyrighted, and won. And as a result, the official copyright stated that she and her sisters would collect royalties from anyone who sang the song until 1991. <laughs> now, did they ever collect... I'll chalk up the lack of information on that as a uh, big fat no. But still, they could have. The copyright company, though, that Hill used was eventually purchased, becoming the property of Warner Brothers. Warner Brothers, now owning the company and owning the famous birthday song, decided, you know what? We think we want to actually enforce this copyright. And Jay Records show that enforce it they did. At one point, Warner Brothers was pulling in an estimated $2 million per year from public performances of Happy Birthday, including $5,000 from companies like Disney 
every time it used the song in a parade. But in the 2010s, it all started to change. Anti-copyright lawyers stumbled upon the little-known happy birthday copyright and decided to pursue making it part of the public domain. And Jay, our hero in this story, is a lawyer named Robert Braunus. He successfully argued that while the song was probably written by the Hill family, it was impossible for Warner Brothers to prove it. The evidence just simply didn't exist. So in the end, the song was added to the public domain, and Warner Brothers was actually ordered to pay in excess of $14 million back to everyone that they had ever charged for singing it. So Jay, Warner Brothers' loss was our family's gain. For generations to come, we can sing Happy Birthday without fear of paying for it. Yeah, it's pretty bold of Warner Brothers just to kind of be like, you know what? We need some money. Let's uh, let's go after Happy Birthday. <laughs> We're going to get that back. <laughs> you can just see a bunch of evil guys in a room. <laughs> <laughs> just laughing it up. They're like taking their kid to a birthday party. They're like, hey, hey, you have to pay us actually now. And everybody's laughing. He's like, no, I'm serious. Uh, you have to pay us right now. <laughs> and that's it. Thanks for listening. Don't forget to rate, subscribe, and review Commute on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or on your favorite podcast network. We're on social. Check us out. We're on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. And you can always say what up at our website, commutethepodcast.com. Music for Commute is provided by my main man, Jason Sammons. For Jay Sisson, I'm Dave Traub. We'll see you next week.